Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. And welcome to yet another Lines Led by Donkeys podcast. I am Joe, and with me today is Liam. Hello, Liam. Hi. Can can you tell I'm getting better at intros by sounding like a fucked up robot? Um, yeah, you uh, you sounded like a uh, uh, budget. What's his name? The guy. Good night. Good luck, guy. The newscaster. Cronkite. Is that Cronkite? I, I, I don't. I have no idea. <laughs> I always confuse him and Edward Teller, Fodham of the Atom Bomb. I don't know why I do that, but I'm just like, yeah, same dude, right? Yeah, say, same. Uh, what What is news but uh, a, a, a nuclear bomb for your TV? Um, Kill your TV, kids. There's a reason they call it programming. If oh god, that sounds that sounds like Wait, something. Mom used to have that shirt, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like something that should be like an edgy Facebook meme from like Occupy Wall Street days. You know what I mean? Uh, the uh, yeah, my mom's just an old hip, like not hippie because hippies never got off their ass and did anything. But like, my mom was very into the like consumer society is rotting your brain, Liam. And then I was just like, can't hear you over GTA Four, mom. <laughs> my mom is an old hippie but only to smoke weed your political nuances are lost my mom won't smoke weed but she doesn't give a shit if my dad and I do not that I condone the use of marijuana I do it. Oh, well <laughs> you have a TBI so probably better for you and of course I live in the state where like all forms of weed are, are illegal um, most people would assume illegal? that like yeah like most people would assume that Hawaii is pretty, pretty chill like it'd be illegal nothing uh, there's not shit here, man. Nothing. That is so goddamn. I mean, don't don't quote me on the medicinal part, but like, I, it's pretty it's pretty fucking restricted. Um, it, which is funny because I was like, oh yeah, it's why everybody's relaxed. Like, yeah, until you talk about drugs. Uh, like they were gonna Hawaii, vote. the Mississippi of the Pacific. Yeah, they were going the Mississippi to Mississippi of the will. Oh, if you will. God. Um, Hi, they, Joe. <laughs> they were gonna vote on it, and the governor, uh, Governor Ige, who is terrible governor um heck of a said, name said that he would uh veto it uh it's like cool well, he's a democrat like everybody here's a democrat but like right. they're, they're democrats which would probably be more at home in like one of the carolinas than when people think the you know the the aloha state is so much more progressive and it's absolutely not uh but speaking of democrats we have a new segment on this show, which I have yet to name. Uh, I reached out for names and they were all bad. Good job, guys. Um, but like, <laughs> I've also, I've been really like, oh, it's the presidential corner. But eventually we're going to run out of clips to do with presidents and just have to come up with other shit. Um, so this is the clip corner of the show. Uh, what what, what, what if a it. podcast before podcast? Now, 
Liam, do you ever stress eat? Joe, have you ever seen a picture of me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I stress yeah, eat. motherfucker, I stress eat. <laughs> I stress eat, too. Uh, and you know who else stress eats? Lyndon Baines Johnson. <laughs> America's greatest president, which I'm going to say every time we do this. I heard someone describe him as he was the first president who realized how cool it was to be president. Yes. Um, so this is Lyndon uh, B. Johnson on the phone with, I believe, his secretary desperately trying to get snacks in the middle of the night. <laughs> I've just eaten my head off. I can't button my britches. I'm craving all the time. The stuff I get just won't hold me. Uh, and I used to hear Tom Miller, Mayor Austin, say whenever he had troubles, he had to eat it all. And uh, I guess everybody does. So what I asked Paul to do is get him to make me the absolutely lowest calorie dessert they could. Now, I'm not sure that tapioca is. I gain on it. And I love <laughs> it. But anyway, I ought to have some. Every 10, 15 pounds a month. The thing that I can eat next that seems to be bulky. Jello, jello. Get some kind of jello that doesn't have too many calories, and get me some diet to put in. I think they have done. Get some what's put in it? Some ice box. Fruit or something. Get it. I need some kind of dessert. If not, bring me the tapioca. I just had one little uh, cup of cold bouillon, what been eat. Came from downstairs, and it was lukewarm, nauseatingly warm. So I've got to eat something before I get to work here, and I can't take my nap. I tell them to uh, to bring me uh, the bouillon. All right, good now. Dessert. The dessert. Are you planning to go over to Lucy's party? Should I go? Yes, sir. <laughs> and uh, it start, it's all now. Well, I'm going to last. I don't think more than until 4 o'clock. All right. Uh, well, I guess I'll walk on over there now. Okay, I'll go over and I'll get myself. All right. You think about the diet, so I think about what you're going to do for lunch. Maybe I'll start eating here. All right. <laughs> so... <laughs> I just love I I fucking love the guy I like I know Vietnam bad but like I uh, am, I'm always fascinated by Johnson I know he recorded everything and to be president you basically have to be an unrelented sociopath yeah but, without, like, without just, a doubt yeah but just like calling your secretary and being like so you got food <laughs> so, so you got sex uh, I was I could I can say this on air even though my parents probably listen to this that's fine whatever. Uh, so my dad, you know, back, uh, many years ago, uh, was a good yippie and, uh, smoked, smoked some weed in his day. You know how it be. And, uh, he hadn't smoked weed in, in many, many years. Cause like my mom's not super comfortable with it because she gets, you know, the associations, like when she smokes weed, she like wants to drink and my parents stopped drinking, uh, any number of years ago. But, uh, a friend of mine gave me an edible. And I gave it to my dad because it was like a control. It, it was control. He wasn't driving. Anyway. He doesn't drive anymore. You know, I was like, I'm not worried about him. He's going to be fine. So I was like, here, do you, I literally asked him, do you want to get high? He was like, yeah. So I gave my dad the edible and I told him specifically, do not eat the other half of this or you're going to go to space. Right. <laughs> and in protest to being told what to do. My dad, as he was leaving, takes the other half of the cookie, slams it in his face like he's in preschool, just like straight to the dome after saying like this edible ain't shit. And 
my mom calls me from the road. She's driving my dad back and she's like, A, you got him high. B, he won't stop asking. Like apparently like every like 45 seconds to a minute was asking for snacks <laughs> for like the two hour drive back to my parents' house. You got to give him a like, cup of cold bouillon apparently. <laughs> yeah. Like he went through all the cookies and was just like, can we stop at sheets? <laughs> uh, there was uh, when I was living in Washington where weed is legal, I had, I had tons of my friends go visit me there, uh, which is funny because like I, I, I had friends and family go to Washington to visit me, which is like 100% weed tourism, right? Like I'm not hating on them for that. Uh, but like living in a place that's actually nice, like Hawaii, like everyone's like, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> There's no weed there. Like, all right, fair. Uh, but, well, uh, Joe, you won't stop complaining about tourists. <laughs> I heard you on Brigham Young money. Well, I was know, just like, I already booked that trip. You know, when we have 400 <laughs> COVID Joe cases on my one me. island, uh, well, uh, someone came to visit me in Washington and they got like a gummy bear from the weed shop. And I'm just like, uh, very proud of it. Well, that is like, he's a big guy. Like, he competes in like strong men and stuff. The dude's like 300 plus pounds. He's a big, big boy. Sure. And uh, he is like, oh, yeah, I ate the whole thing. I was like, bro, you were not supposed to do that. You're supposed to only eat like the leg of the gummy bear. And holy shit, he immediately just like passed the fuck out. Like he was he was awake. His eyes were open and he was he was peering into another dimension, but also like no longer of this earth. <laughs> yes, he ascended uh, and he did not move for hours. Like my dog crawled up on him and was like licking him in the face to ensure he was still alive. Um, Good dog. Good dog. <laughs> Now, uh, Liam, the last couple of weeks of programming here in the Lions Live by Donkeys have been, has been heavy, right? Um, I mean, I love learning about the genocidal Napoleon cosplayers as much as anybody, Joe. But, you know, we've had a lot of two-parters. Uh, those two-parters have all duologies, involved Joe. Du- the duologies. Uh, they've all involved some heavy-ass shit. Genocide. You know, it's casual, uh, (laughs) alleged misdemeanor level cannibalism. Yeah. um, Whatever. You know, sometimes you get hungry. Lyndon Johnson is there to attest to it. It's like uh, getting caught with drugs. You can get caught with like a misdemeanor amount of drugs and like a felony amount of drugs. He was caught with only a misdemeanor amount of human flesh. It's fine. Um, It's it's fine. My boy didn't do nothing wrong. He was found (laughs) innocent of that charge. The murder. Yes, he did all of those. Uh, But he did not need anybody. But, you know, I thought. It would be okay to do, um, you know, a, a chiller episode, right? Like, uh, uh, if those were fitted pants, these are loose fit pants. I'm not good these at are analogies. Lyndon Johnson down 15 pounds, not yes. up 15 pounds. Yes, these are these are solidly Lyndon B. Johnson down 15 pounds. Um, and the reason for that is we're going to talk about Nazis dying in, in plane crashes. Um, USA, <laughs> USA. So you didn't say Nazis dying in rocket crashes that I wouldn't. Well, that I guess the USA chant would be even more appropriate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I in a, in a, in a USSR chant and you know, everyone else. Having to like not justify, but I remember uh, teaching my girlfriend and her friends about Operation Paperclip. Yeah, and yeah. then being like, why on earth would they do that? And I was like, well. And I'm like putting on my best Alan Dulles hat. I was like, well, it's either us or the Russians and like better us than them. Like really uncomfortable with the actions of my own government. But like, you know, I get it. Not not the greatest ethical choice, but like you get it. 
If, if I was to slide my glasses up my nose, I would say if it makes you feel any better, the Soviets actually took even more of them than we did. Uh, <laughs> that actually does make me feel better. It turns out like a little everyone's, bit. Once the Nazis are gone, it is truly a competition of who's a bigger piece of shit. Because like when the Nazis are there, everybody knows the Nazis are the biggest pieces of shit. Uh, and then once you eliminate them, it's just like Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man, right? Um and the answer is it's Monaco. Monaco is actually the biggest piece of shit. Um, now, Liam, if I was yeah, the one listener, which is fifty percent of the of the Monaco population, is like, well, I'm turning this podcast off. Um, I feel offended. Uh, you're Monaco is great because I always want to watch the fastest cars in the world idle around tiny, shitty cobbled streets at five miles an hour. <laughs> Everyone is a prince of some kind. <laughs> i just it's a cool it's a cool i'm not even whatever it's a city and a country i guess it's yeah. a cool country to visit i've i've been to monaco but like you're very aware of like hmm, maybe we should really get on eating the rich <laughs> monaco is also a buffet um now Liam, if I was going to make you a list uh, of you're you're gonna make a rocket powered aircraft, this, which is you know not technically a jet, I suppose. Um, I'm not an aircraft enthusiast or aeronautical engineer. Um, no, there are like rocket powered craft, like the U.S. like X-15, which held the like fastest atmospheric vehicle. It was a space plane, basically. Okay, but it was rocket powered, like super experimental. This one, so we're talking specifically rocket-powered aircraft. If you were going to make one, uh, whose job eventually would be to target enemy bomber planes? Um, if you could pick three things, like it, it has to be fast, right? Like it, it, the well, whole yeah, point it's a rocket show. Yeah. Can you land it? Should you be able to land this thing? I sure would like to. <laughs> Can you occupy it without being melted into something that looks like jelly? I sure would like to. I understand if, you know, best two out of three, but... What if I could only offer you one of those things? I'll take it. Melted <laughs> Nazis, right? <laughs> I'm that alternate Krieger from uh, that shitty Archer season where he's uh, just spends all his time wasting Nazi money. I mean, Krieger in every season is kind of like a crazed Nazi scientist. I mean, they even named him Krieger. I think that's what they're going for. Yeah. And um, they imply that he's a genetic clone of Adolf Hitler at some point. So the happens to the best of us, right? When some lose some. <laughs> uh, so congratulations. I'd like to welcome you into being a German test pilot uh, around, uh, you know, late 1930s throughout the middle of World War II. Um, now, like I already said, I do have to point out that we are talking about a rocket fighter, not a jet. Because uh, the Germans did have a two six two, yeah, yeah, it was a very functional, well-meaning and useful jet. Uh, the the Messerschmitt Me two six two, and the the jet worked. Uh, the jet engine worked. It had reliability issues because they're slapping rocket or sorry jet engines together in the middle of a war when they barely have food anymore. But yes. like once uh, you know things were retrofitted and fixed and you know not under the stresses of wartime operations, the two six two was used by nations for like another decade because uh, it worked pretty well. Um, you know, it was better than a shitty propeller plane, but not as good as the, f like the first generation of uh, American or Soviet jet aircraft. Uh, like the, I think the checks used it for until like the yes, mid fifties. I think I read that. 
Now, the Germans also had uh, a history of fucking around with rockets. Uh, we kind of like a, a more racist Wiley Coyote, right? Um, sure. Actually, <laughs> I can't say that for sure. I have have not logged into Wiley Coyote's Gab account. I do not know what he is up to. <laughs> now, Roadrunner illegal immigrant? <laughs> right to self-defense question mark you know i'm gonna go on a limb here and i'm gonna assume wiley coyote is a sovereign citizen i don't know why uh he just oh, yeah he, he's a sob sit yeah. <laughs> yeah he's one of those freaks um now if you remember you know the treaty of versailles at the end of world war one put a lot of limitations on the kind of things that uh, the german state could build to research especially weapons right well the good news is that everyone followed it yeah there's there's no violations and it certainly didn't lead to any I don't know, blowback maybe? Uh, now, one of those limitations was on single-seat airplanes because like the concept of like a fighter and a bomber wasn't fully solidified. But they oh. knew you know, a propeller-powered single-seat airplane, that, that, that's for war stuff. You can't have that, right? Some uh, guy in a Cessna just being intercepted. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if, if you could go back in time and just give someone in World War One like a shitty Cessna, Cessna Piper, it would be the best aircraft on the battlefield, bar none. It's <laughs> the Red Baron in a, in, a, in a fucking Cessna. Oh, God. Uh, a plot was Harrison Ford has to fly it. Oh! <laughs> uh, for people who are unaware, Harrison Ford keeps getting in plane crashes. And helicopter crashes, right? He, Who gave him a helicopter? Well, he gave uh, him a helicopter, I suppose. That's, you know, I want a helicopter. I Not don't crash stuff just for. Well, I don't want. I think I would just trick my many enemies into riding in it. This this shirt that says my helicopter is not for fascist stuff is is, is bringing up a lot of questions. My shirt said answer. Um, now, yeah, this did not mean that Germans were like, oh shit, I guess we can't fly anymore. Um, that meant they had to start thinking outside the box, largely like uh, you know a cartoon character that longed for death in the coolest way possible. Enter a guy named Alexander Alexander Lipich. Uh, he was a World War One pilot. And he ended up being an employee of the Zeppelin company. Uh, so he knows a thing or two about crashing. Um, and he, you know, he could not you know, manufacture planes, like the, the single seat plane. So he's like, you know what we can manufacture? It isn't banned. Gliders. Unpowered flight, right? Uh, in doing so, he helped design and, and figure out a lot of stuff that makes a lot of modern day aviation possible, like the Delta Wing and like tailless aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really understand how those are revolutionary because I'm not an engineer, but someone out there is going, oh, damn, which cool. Like, I, I don't get it, but, <laughs> uh, but what Swap I do wings, less drag, Joe. Thank you. Uh, and that's kind of like what would go into being the I, comet. Is I like, also am not, a, I, I just, I just play one in a podcast, but you're in an engineering podcast, which makes you the most qualified engineer. My degree is in mathematics. <laughs> engineering is just math. I've, I've, a, I have a history degree. So a math degree is might as well be like the brain surgery to me. Um, now, uh, Alexander I'm Lipich. I'm kind of depressed by that. <laughs> <laughs> Alexander Lipich is a guy. Like, have, you, have you ever met a guy that was, uh, just didn't feel like he had a natural uh, fear sense, like he just died or he was born without it? Like, no, no, I'm totally fine ripping down this hill on roller skates through traffic because I want to go fast type person. Josh Munson. Josh Munson. My buddy Josh. Yeah. 
everyone kind of yeah. knows a guy that it, it feels like you know somewhere like a chemical receptor in their brain w- was broken, uh, and that was that was Lipich because he decided to test his his new glider designs by throwing them off the highest mountain in Germany that he could just to see I if mean, they would work. What better way, I guess. I mean, it never killed him. I mean, he was hurt quite a few times, but it never killed him. Um, and then in 1928, only about a decade removed from the first flight of the airplane in general, uh, he strapped a gunpowder rocket to the back of one of his planes, which he called the Duck, and uh, achieved the first manned rocket-powered flight in history in 1928. Okay. All right. That's admittedly kind of sick. <laughs> and then he tried to he tried to do it again, um, and uh, like to go faster, because he thought he could go faster with one of his other gliders. And the rocket sure. exploded in his face uh, and, and did not kill him somehow. And then he was just like, ah, that experiment's no good. Luckily for me, I have no sense of my own mortality. Back to the drawing board. And then there was, for some reason, a mysterious tunnel painted on a rock wall. (laughs) I think the most valuable lesson he learned is like, hmm, I should have other people fly these from now on. Uh, Now, something that should be very clear and will become more clear later on is Lippich did not design this rocket, nor was he uh, any kind of rocket scientist whatsoever the the concepts involved in making a, a a rocket work were kind of foreign to him he was an aerodynamics guy like he came up with airframes that w- would look cool with the rocket strapped onto them uh the rocket he had used in this is borrowed from the opal car manufacturer the same opal car manufacturer that employed adolf hitler's nephew willie actually <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah isn't that a fun coincidence uh and like Opal had been using Love it for Germany, man. <laughs> uh, Opal had been using it for like publicity stunts, which included strapping a rocket onto motorcycles and trains. Yeah, no, hey man, you are gonna get to work whether you want to or not. The, with the new uh, socialist, oh god, workers dash. Uh, I had a Nazi worker joke ready to go, and then I blew it. <laughs> Just ignore me, everybody. Sorry. It blew up in your face like an opal gunpowder rocket. Oh, (laughs) spicy. Uh, Imagine you get on your rocket-powered train somewhere in uh, pre-war Germany. Like, how fast does this go? It will get you right to the scene of your funeral. Fast enough. (laughs) Yeah. Now, later on in the 1930s, aircraft manufacturer Ernst Heinkel undertook a series of experiments to develop a liquid-fueled rocket of his own. Uh, Heinkel's first success came in March 1937 when a modified HE-112 propeller-powered fighter plane took power under rocket power alone for 30 seconds. Now, this was uh, like it took off under propeller power. They cut the propellers propellers and then turned the rocket on. Got it. Then he constructed the HE-176, which on June 20th, 1939, became the first aircraft to take off, fly, and land solely under rocket power. Um, Now, Heinkel, like most people probably involved in creating this thing, thought this would absolutely revolutionize flight. Now, for there's a lot of things that go against Heinkel here. If you look at the date, we're... Very close to World War II territory. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, when uh, and at this point, World War II was already being planned and damn near about to be carried out. So, like, everyone else kind of thought this plane was nuts. Uh, after viewing the test flight of the 176, General Oblast Ernst Udet, who is the director general of equipment uh, uh 
requisition for the uh, the Luftwaffe claimed that, quote, this is no airplane. Leave that thing alone. I forbid you to fly it ever again. <laughs> Ow. Oh. And, yeah. And you, Hitler, almost feel bad for, you almost feel bad for the guy. Just like a sad kid, like with a science fair project, like Badoo would fly if you gave it a chance. He made a, one of those like was it the 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 elementary school volcano eruption things? But it went yeah. too hard, and he's like, "No, no, no! You you, you can't do that." Um, now Hitler was also there when the the rocket plane took flight, and, uh, and even though in a couple years he would be, become fucking obsessed with the Wunderwaffen, you know, the Wonder Weapons yes. or the Victory Weapons, he would greenlight like ten other things that were yep. way dumber than this thing. Uh, to America include, bomber. Yeah, <laughs> to include what we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode, mind you. Uh, and he thought the 176 was dumb as hell. Um, That's tough. Really? I mean, I, yeah. I was reading about the... I mean, this is the, the regime that was just like, tanks the size of cities. Yeah, and like that, again, he would also like reject the uh, the Sturmgewehr 44, which is... I thought that's all service. It did because they ignored what Hitler said. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, at first okay. he thought it was, he didn't want to put it in production because he thought it was ugly. <laughs> okay, it's didn't, 1944. You are sort of out of options, my guy. Yeah, we are stamping this out of aluminum siding, dude. We can't go for aesthetics <laughs> right now. Um, yeah, he thought it was mostly like it was terribly unsafe. The rocket engine was not super stable. Um, yeah, it's a rocket. Yeah. And when oh, uh, no. one of the things that like that really did turn Hitler against the project is like he asked uh, Heinkel like, "Well, what can you do to make it safer?" And Heinkel's like, "Oh, <laughs> get in, know. let's find out." I invented this last fucking week, man. What do you want from me, buddy? I have been awake on math for the last two hundred and forty-eight <laughs> hours, <laughs> and like you know, we are uh, only a couple months away from World War II, and Hitler does not see the purpose into dumping. Uh, material and further research into this, especially because soon all that's going to have to go into churning out propeller planes, right? Um, you know, the, like, the the various other Messerschmitts. But not that, for nothing, but Hitler was incredibly fucking lame, dude. He, he was dumb as shit. For someone who was being like a genocidal yes. maniac, like. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he, he was not an engineer. He was a failed artist and a, I believe, a corporal in the army. He didn't exactly understand the grand scheme of things, um, which is why he lost miserably. Um, you know, and that and being a dipshit. Uh, but, you know, with the beginning of World War II, that did not mean our rocket bros were done. In 1939, Lippisch decided to leave his old job and began working for Messerschmitt, which brought him into becoming co-workers with a guy named Helmuth Walter. Uh, now, Walter was the guy uh, that designed Heinkel's rocket engine. Heinkel didn't design that. Walter did. Uh, so Lippisch said, you know, we can cram this rocket into one of these gliders that I have. Just laying around. Remember these guys, guys, you remember these <laughs> using his, uh, his knowledge. Uh, and from my understanding, Lippich is like one of the best glider designers who's ever lived. Uh, using what his title. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, he, he designed a glider around this rocket engine, which would eventually end up becoming the Messerschmitt one, six, three comet. Um, 
Now, because of his background building gliders, this was not a plane. This was a rocket-powered glider in every sense of the word. And by that, I mean it was even built out of laminated wood because, you know, it needed to glide very well. It needed to have very good aerodynamics, things like that. Um, So it had to be light. Uh, So, you know, for reasons that we will talk about later on, this became a very very big problem. now, their goal was not to make an interceptor or a fighter at first. And there's some argument if this even started out as a military project. It really seemed to be dudes with rockets. Yeah, it was very much dudes rocket. I'm not proud of that. Um, you shouldn't be, Joe. I, you know what? I actually have other stuff to, to do. You know, why don't you finish this one up by yourself? But, I need okay, to get, bye, I need, guys. I need to get a drop that's just people booing at me for bad attempts at jokes. That's basically what I do on my own podcast. I just basically <laughs> harass Roz and Alice until they let me talk. And then I, I make so and then I say something stupid. And then someone in the comments is like, wow, Liam's actually dumb as shit. And I'm like, it's a comedy podcast with slides. Go read a fucking <laughs> wiki page. Like, I can't help you. Thanks for the money. Now <laughs> um it really did seem like the 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 invention of the comet was like, how fast can we fucking go? Right? Um sure. And, of course, they're going to develop things like uh, uh, new ideas on aerodynamics, aeronautical engineering, things like that. It was it was really seemed like it was an experimental platform to try new shit on. Right. Um, and they succeeded. Uh, of all of the things they failed at, and we will talk about them, this is the one thing they did not fail at. In 1941, test pilot Heinrich Dittmar flew the comet at a record-breaking speed of over 1,000 miles an hour. Did he live? Yes. He did it again a few months later and broke 1,300 miles an hour. I mean, that's the sound. Wait, wait, wait. That's the sound barrier. It sure is. <laughs> Although Jaeger is the one credited with it, which is interesting. Yeah. Now, there's there's some controversy about this because, you know, this is it's 1941. It's Germany. One, people don't want to give credit to a Nazi rocket scientist for breaking the sound barrier. And two, there's some argument if his measurements were super accurate. Though Dittmar, who did not understand what the sound barrier was, did explain an experience that certainly sounded like someone breaking through the sound barrier. <laughs> like he heard a, large, a loud boom and thought the rocket engine exploded, things like that. Fair. Can you imagine them? They probably didn't tell me that they're just like, you're going to go very fast, yeah? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exciting, yeah? And, okay. And <laughs> there is some evidence to suggest that, like, uh, they didn't know it was going to go that fast because oh, okay. how, the guy builds gliders. How the fuck is he going to know that, yes, yeah, it's going to go a thousand miles an hour? Like, normally I glide at a gentle 50, you know? Um, That's a good point. Now, this, there is some evidence, again, to suggest that this is the. Did not go that fast, though there is firsthand accounts that say he did break the sound barrier. Um, but there's even more evidence suggests that if they did, they did it on accident <laughs> uh, because n- this plane was not uh, designed to go this fast. Uh, Dittmar uh, explained Nazis, that- everybody. <laughs> Again, it's a rocket powered wooden aircraft <laughs> like, built by a guy who made gliders. Uh like Dittmar said, the uh, the the canopy rose up, like broke off, and the only thing keeping it attached to the plane was the slipstream, like the pressure of the air passing yeah. against the the plane. I guess um, his controls became completely unresponsive. Uh, he nearly blacked out. 
he broke all of the blood vessels in his eyes, and uh, it's estimated that he went through a negative eleven Gs. And uh, I thought that would like that by most accounts that should have killed him. Uh, yeah. But but that's by, why I asked if he lived. I but, was not expecting yeah. him to. By Ditmar's account, he did almost die. Uh, <laughs> uh, he. Is it says that like his memory is hazy, but he did not black out, which leads me to believe he blacked out multiple times and just didn't realize it. Yeah. Um, but the rocket thrust, this rocket only had uh, the fuel for a couple seconds. Like this was a very, very quick burst of speed, which is probably why it was so violent for Ditmar, right? Uh, like you, normally when you accelerate up to that speed, you do it over a very gradual amount of time. Uh, Unless you're strapped to a rocket, in which unless, case, good luck to you. Unless you're strapped into a suicidal rocket sled fired into the air by Nazi scientists like Heinrich Dittmar was. Now, after that was the, the best of us. You know how it goes. <laughs> Whoopsie Daisy ended up almost breaking into the fucking uh, into orbit on accident. Um, Ugh, I hate Mondays just being strapped in by fucking Mangala or whoever. <laughs> All right, Lippich just made gliders. I don't know if he ever killed anybody. (laughs) Nazi is a Nazi is a Nazi, Joe. Well, actually, he did kill a lot of people. We're going to talk about a lot of people that Lippich's design killed later on. Um, And this was built by slave labor, but we'll get there. Um, We always fucking do. (laughs) And there's there's actually a a fair bit of, of things to suggest that like this first one worked really, really well because it wasn't built by slave labor. And that would ah. change later on. <laughs> That's terrific. And the plane itself would get more complicated. So at this point, it's being towed up to mm-hmm. altitude, at which point it'd be cut loose. Rocket engine would cut on. Rocket engine would burn out after a couple seconds, and then they would glide back down to Earth. Um, now, one of the problems is, is, is Lippich designed a glider that worked so well, it was incredibly hard to land. Um, like It would be gliding, going at like 300 miles an hour, and it's apparently it's it's lift abilities were so so well designed that even a, a slight gust of wind would push it back up again. And there, there's there's really nothing the pilot could do to settle it back down. In case you're curious, normal commercial airliners land at about 140. Yeah, uh, so this is a problem. At like 190. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I learned that yesterday actually. Um. So yeah, you you can see the problem here. And another problem was it's a glider. Right, you can't do a second pass. There won't be enough speed left. So, uh, something that Ditmar learned by just figuring <laughs> his this teeth were shaking out while, while his brain is actively being churned into liquid by G forces was, and it's because he's a good pilot. Like he realized, like I'm going way too fucking fast to land this thing, and he would have to like circle it, like bring it into like tighter concentric circles, and and bring it slowly closer and closer back down to earth but oh that sounds fucking terrifying yeah this is not something that was told to him beforehand either (laughs) he's like i have to do this or i'm gonna die um now the rocket had an incredible rate of climb and also because of the way that the comet was designed it but you look like you can go to fucking space in the thing right Mm -hmm. this this thing could climb so fast it could climb to an altitude of 39,000 feet in less than four minutes. Wow. Uh, again, this That's thing is built out of space wood. shit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Th- this is about the same uh, level of scientific aptitude as whatever fucking uh, Elon Musk has, built, ha- has designed. <laughs> um, 
Actually, no, because he hasn't designed anything. He just hires people to yes, design it for him. Yes, I was going to say, don't besmirch the good people of SpaceX who actually do the work. Yeah, my bad. I'm Joe. Just, I apologize, SpaceX. I did not mean to compare you to Nazis. They're happy. Only the Na- oh, only like all of the NASA rockets. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> now, uh, this incredibly fast rate of climb required pilots to maintain a special low fiber diet. Uh, because what you would you would fucking rocket through the air so quickly, uh, it would cause gas in your lower intestines to expand, <laughs> and one, it would be incredibly painful, and two, you just fill the cockpit of the rocket powered death plane with terror farts. <laughs> just. Breaking this sound barrier, <laughs> shitting your pants. Has <laughs> ever heard of the brown note? <laughs> the Nazis developed the brown note. You just have to strap up. You guys have heard of Wunderoff, all right? <laughs> <laughs> we built the brown note gun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Had a bad day at work. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I feel bad for whoever's editing this having to cut us gagging over our own laughs. <laughs> I mean, the good the good news is, um, like like I said, the cockpit was kind of not sealed very well, so it was going to be vented by hundreds, if not thousands, of miles per hour of air. So the farts would immediately get pushed out of the cockpit. <laughs> now, uh, here's where we get to talk about all the downsides of this thing, um, which I'm going to bet there were many. More more than not. Um, so as soon as this rocket-powered monster began to leave the ground, it began killing about half of anybody who touched it. Good. Uh, this Welcome also to the resistance. <laughs> kind of fucking uh, Messerschmitt comment. Welcome to the resistance. Um, now, uh, this included pilots and ground crew for reasons we will get into. Now, what made this plane more dangerous than just about any other plane developed during the war? Well, a few things. For one, it had no landing gear. Um, because remember, it was designed by a glider guy. It was, it, was, it was to be towed up into the air, right? So when mm-hmm. it, this eventually got turned to a military aircraft, we realized like, oh, we, we can't tow this thing. That doesn't, it doesn't work. Uh, well, we have to put wheels on it so it can launch itself, right? Well, yeah, this you know that became a problem because to strap anything more onto it would have changed its flight characteristics and probably made it cart like just cartwheel hilariously through the air until it exploded. Um, so in 1942, it was ordered to get into combat-ready status as quickly as possible. And the top secret testing, it was moved to the top secret testing site of Pinamunda, which is a word I only know thanks to a Battlefield 1942 expansion. Wasn't Pinamunda the uh, also the heavy water plant or is that different? I think that one was in Norway. I'm not sure. Yeah. Hang on. Uh, yes. I, I also paid Pinamunda. Yeah. Pinamunda was pretty much the top secret testing uh, site for all of V2. the V2. I know it from the V2. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It was where all the victory weapons yeah. were used. And it also had a its own like slave labor camp that was <laughs> building rockets in a in like uh, a tunnel. Very weird shit going on there. Um, now, 
Since this thing could break through the goddamn speed of sound, allegedly, and it was mostly built by slave laborers at this point, and dudes also just kind of guessing on what happens next because they've never done this before either, they didn't want to change the design. So they had to think of a way to put wheels on it without it having to modify the body of the plane. So they just kind of slapped together a wheel dolly it would sit on. Um, the plane would be sit sat upon these this dolly system where it would then be towed to the runway uh, by like a a tractor. Uh, and here, here's the thing: uh, these wheels had no shock absorbing properties whatsoever. Um, this meant that as soon as the pilot took it's off, a deal it, when you're, yeah. Yeah, because now remember, it's not being towed anymore. Uh, it has to take off under rocket power. And the rocket is, it has two settings off, and you're being thrown into the fucking stratosphere. So <laughs> it would rip off the ground fast as hell. Uh, and it would just shake the pilot like a motherfucker as soon as it tried to take off. And for reasons that we will, we will get to, it could not take off off a runway. It was considered too unsafe to be anywhere near a normal runway. So they had to take off in the middle of open fields, you know, full of divots and stuff. You know, if all of this worked, uh, you know, when it took off under rocket power, the dolly was supposed to separate from the body, leaving it behind. Sure. That often didn't work great um oh no (laughs) sometimes it just becomes stuck and then pop off uh, which would then cause it to strike the ground and then maybe bounce into the you know wooden plane with a rocket strapped onto it uh which would cause horrible explosions mind you um just hold on to that one for later another problem was landing because i'd already pointed out there was no landing gear uh and so how it was designed was there'd be these little skids that would come off like within a couple inches. It would uh, come off off the body of the plane because this is what they apparently do on gliders is that lets you just skip across whatever you're landing on. Um, so as it got would glide in for the landing, they deploy these little skids. You're good to go. But uh, that never worked either. There's skids. There's no shock absorbing properties again so like even a perfect landing would shatter pilots bones and most pilots who didn't just get killed by the fucking thing uh would just get mangled uh this included uh well for one ditmar but also uh nazi germany's favorite test pilot Hans reich uh, who was like oh no not hans reich uh, well she was like hitler's favorite test pilot heck of a Um, heck of a nazi name too yeah, yeah. It's, I like to think she's like, no, my name is always kind of close to Reich. I totally didn't change it. Um, like, she was well known for being like, like I said, Hitler's favorite test pilot. And she rode the thing. Uh, and when she landed it, she was a very good pilot. So she, you know, took off, didn't kill herself in the air, brought it back down for what should have been a very normal landing and said her face got annihilated because, like, <laughs> she landed on the skids like you're supposed to, which caused the entire plane to like jar wildly. Uh, and the, yeah, her face went right into the control panel and broke most of it. Um, oh, no, she, what a shame. <laughs> yeah. Now, all of these things are nuts, but this leads us to the one thing that solidly puts the comet in the will there's your problem wheelhouse, right? That's the, us. The fuel. Um, 
Yes, tell me about the fuel. You've been you've been you you've been you've been hyping this shit up, Joe. Honestly, it is if there's more crazy fuel mixtures out there, I've never heard of them. But granted, I wouldn't. It's not something I study. But Helmuth uh, Walters engine was power that powered the comet ran on a combination of two propellants, Seastoff uh, or uh, substance uh, T, highly concentrated hydrogen peroxide, and Seastoff uh, or substance C, a thirty percent mixture of hydrazine, hyrite, and methanol. Uh, methanol. Now, uh, I probably pronounced this wrong. Sorry, chemistry people. Now, these propellants were known as hypergolic. Uh, now, for the non-chemistry nerds or people who don't listen to Liam's other show, first of all, go listen to that other show because I know I've heard you talk about this before over there. Um, hypergolic means that if the two things ever react with one another, they'll become violently reactive uh-huh. uh, within, <laughs> within milliseconds. These things cannot come close to touching one another. Now, as you can imagine, this is a bit of a problem when they have to be pumped into the same rocket engine. Uh, furthermore, other than being hypergolic with one another, they were pretty much hypergolic with... Well, they're hypergolic with air. One yes. of them, I think. It, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, they were pretty much... They would violently react, explosively violently react with almost anything. Um, now... This included individual specks of dirt and dust. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was also virtually impossible to handle them in any safe manner. Uh, like you, they uh, resorted to washing out the engine with uh, like highly pressurized water in between uh, flights. So to make sure that like no dust on there, but then they would have to wait for it to air dry right. because they also could not be mixed with water. Uh, which would lead dirt and dust together back in there. So there was a lot of on-the-ground explosions. Um, also, if you handled them, I think it was uh, mostly the the tea stuff. Uh, if you handled them at all, they would literally melt human flesh and bone. Uh, they <laughs> like that's praxis, man. It wasn't like I need. I, I need to underline something here. It did not burn you. It melted you. And that is that is the the through line for all firsthand accounts of handling this stuff. It wasn't that you you had chemical burns; it would quote dissolve human flesh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it, was, it didn't give you chemical burns. It it melted you, you guys, like candle wax. For our audience, I think you guys remember the last scene in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's one hundred percent what it did. Now, this extreme volatility meant that great care had to be taken when refueling the comet, with propellants being loaded one at a time and the engine being fleshed out, like I said, with water between each flight. Each component of the fuel had to be stored very specifically in very special kind of containers. Now, the funny part is they both had to be held in very specific but different kind of containers. And if you ever mix them up, everyone around you would die horribly. Right. Um, you're, you're getting melted. You're going yeah. full Wicked Witch of the East, bro. Like one had to be like in a ceramic and glass enclosed uh, container, and the other one had to be in like an aluminum one. But if you mix them up, the re- the aluminum would make the other one react, and the same, you know, vice versa. Um, now the pilots had uh, were worried about this as well because you know, go figure, they're strapped into it, and uh, so they were apply they were supplied with uh, acid proof asbestos flight suits. Oh. <laughs> Which uh, safety is job one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nazi OSHA is really hurting. Um, 
the, the flight suits did not work. Um, but uh, like they were good for like incidental contact, like a s- barely a splash. Any more than mm. that, they would just get melted. Now, the Germans came up with special safety precautions because they knew how nuts this was. Uh, for instance, like trucks holding one component can be within uh, 800 meters of the other truck holding the other component. component. Uh, but accidents were still more common than not having accidents. Because remember, these guys, the guys handling this stuff are not chemists. No, they're guys. They're, they're soldiers. They're like flight crew guys. They're not like, you know, actually trained chemists who know. Um, now, one member of the ground crew mixed up one particular container and, that, and put the wrong chemical in it. One person said, quote, before he realized the magnitude of his mistake, his remains had been spread thinly over the entire test shed. Hmm. Jello. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Getting turned into pasta sauce is not a thing I've ever desired. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's, it happened. The, the only good thing I could see is it always happened so quickly that like nobody well, probably realized there was a problem. Show. Well, it also happened to Nazis. Um, uh, so yeah, you know Nazis getting churned into marinara sauce by a fucked up chemistry experiment, uh, experiment that they're running with slave labor. I guess I'm fine with that, but like, <laughs> if you would have made the mistake, uh, apparently these things were so uh, reactive that you would never knew you made the mistake. You just cease to be. Um, so I guess that's almost kind of a relief. Yeah. Uh, so you don't have to worry about much. You might just see a bright flash, and then everybody has to scrape you up with shovels. It's uh, like that. I read a, an interview with a bomb disposal tech in Afghanistan, and they were just like, how do you stay so calm when you work? And he goes, well, either I do my job right or it's not my problem anymore. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, now, the fuels, the fuel mixture's instability also meant that landing a comet with even a drop of fuel left in it was a death sentence. The why, rough- didn't, <laughs> why didn't they just drop the rock uh yeah why not just drop the rocket well the rocket engine itself can come out and there's still like fuel okay. lines that because i was sna- thinking okay okay i was thinking sort of like space shuttle booster type of thing but i imagine oh, no. that that wasn't around yet oh no this this was not a, a multi-stage rocket um now the rough landings with on the skids would could cause lines to break because remember the lines depending on which fuel it was had to be made like one of the fuel lines is fucking ceramic and glass because it's the only thing that could hold one component of fuel. So they weren't very reliable. Um, so like if you had any fuel left in your lines and you had a particularly rough crash landing, because it seemed like all landings were kind of rough, um, you would just get nuked. Um, uh, the one pilot joked, quote, if possible, or sorry, if you landed with fuel, Quote, if possible, head straight to the cemetery in order to save expenses. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes rocket would just cut out, the rockets would just cut out and fail once they took off, which was never really a big deal because, you know, this thing glides very, very well. Uh, right. So you're not just going to fall out of the sky. Uh, now, if this happened to a comet pilot, they were ordered to glide in a straight line, never turn or bank or land and hit an evacuate uh, button that would dump out the fuel of both cells, mind you. Uh, so if the emergency evac had not been broken upon takeoff, mind you, because of how horrible everybody's getting shook by this thing, um, 
or the very rapid acceleration as you rocket 40,000 feet into the air, it would then rain a horrible caustic shower of death onto everything below it. Maybe, possibly, saving the pilot's life. (laughs) You win some, you lose some, I guess. I would really like to see like someone point a video camera at the comet as this happens because like it has to just explode underneath of it right. as the two because the two chemicals are going to mix in the air. Yeah, and the, one of them explodes on contact with the air. So <laughs> <laughs> now sometimes none of this would matter. Every once in a while, well, the rock- our pilots survive, but we created air blast bombs. <laughs> uh, send this to the Japanese. They're into the kamikaze thing. Um, actually. Funny story that does happen. Um, you know, so everyone saw this just wouldn't matter. Um, the rockets wouldn't burn all of the fuel just right, leaving fuel in the line. He's meaning best case scenario, they were a flying bomb. Uh, so this is a, a firsthand account of one of these such incidents. Quote, a certain failed viable, Alois Bornell from Aschau, an excellent fellow and com- completely reliable flying and accuracy of precision of instrument, was chosen from among us pupils to make the first sharp start of the comet. Make it good, Alois, we shouted. And then he was off. Uh, This is from the memoirs of Mano Zeigler, one of the few Comet pilots to survive the war. As expected, Alois's rocket motor cut out at about 6,000 meters altitude. (laughs) He then turned towards the field as precise as ever. And then without warning, side side slip, uh, a shout came from the group. Alois was much too high and a touchdown anywhere near the landing cross. Side slip, side slip, we all shouted as if he could hear us. And then the comet shot past us and passed the landing cross too high, too fast. Anxiously, we watched the comet touched touched down far outside the airfield perimeter, rebound into the air, drop back down again like a brick and skid into some rough ground and turn over on its back. A split second later, a blinding white flame of a ball of flame shot up, followed by a mushroom cloud of smoke. (laughs) Now, he was vaporized instantly. Uh, everyone wasn't that lucky, however. There was Oberlieutenant Josef Poles, who uh, on one flight released his takeoff dolly too early. The dolly bounced back up to the ground and struck the aircraft, rupturing a T-stop line. Poles immediately jettisoned his fuel like he was supposed to and banked around to make an emergency landing. But just like Alois Verndal missed the runway, you can't double back because it's gliding at this point, and he touched down on rough ground. Then it flipped over. Now, this generally wouldn't have been much of a problem if it wasn't for that broken T-stop line, which just so happened to pour directly into his cockpit. To the, re- to the relief of those watching, his aircraft did not explode. So when they ran over there with some medics to see if he was okay, they opened the cockpit to find that he had been liquefied. Oh, pasta sauce, yeah. Yep. The, yep, he had just been churned into liquid. His, uh, his flight suit was mentioned uh, as just floating in it. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't want the Cronenberg body horror. <laughs> Even when the fuel didn't leak, sometimes fumes would leak through the fuel lines, burning the pilot's eyes and nearly blinding them as they flew the aircraft. <laughs> now, despite all of this, development went ahead and eventually the comet was armed. Oh, with of course pair- it did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who cares? There's pilots, right? Fuck them. Uh, the comet was armed with a pair of small 30 millimeter cannons. Uh, by 1944, it was considered a combat operational, though it was to be known as to a do what a point defense fighter. This okay. meant that the little landing strips or fields, rather, would be stationed on important infrastructure, you know, like factories, roads, bridges, whatever. And then when Allied bombers came overhead, they would quickly launch off a cloud of these little fuckers. Uh, they would climb out to 
38, 35, 40,000 feet, cut off the rocket engine, and then dive back through the landing glider mode um, and uh, try to shoot down bombers before they could continue to uh, the strategic, the Allied strategic bombing of Germany, a subject that is controversial and for a different podcast, because I'm sure someone's just like, you didn't even talk about strategic bombing. Not today. Moving on. So <laughs> <laughs> work hard when we do it. <laughs> Scoreboard. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> um, now, this, in theory, worked okay. Um, but uh, then when the bombers showed up, the pilots discovered there was another problem with the comet. The plane went too fucking fast. Now, due to the short range of these cannons, during a high-speed approach, the pilot only had a window of around three seconds to aim and fire his guns. Oh, no. Because it was flying at 800 miles an hour. Yeah, that was my next question. (laughs) Yeah, it's just too fast. Um, This made it impossible for anyone to really hit anything other than just pure dumb luck. So pilots would eventually learn just like, once you get within, you know, you know, uh, the Kentucky windage of these bombers as you're rocking through the air just let off on your cannons, which only held about 60 rounds because they weren't going to be in the air very long. Um, so they, the Germans then came up with a new weapon, the ST, the SG 500 Jägerfaust, uh, which co- consisted of five 50 millimeter cannon barrels pointed vertically at the wings of the of the comet, which would be fired automatically by a fuel uh, by a photo cell. If the photocell was hit by a shadow of passing below a bomber, all 10 barrels would fire automatically. What if it's all a cloud? I was just about to say that. (laughs) (laughs) That would also cause them to fire, which is one of the reasons why it didn't get rolled out. That, you know, it's 1944, 45 at this point. Now, allies are very confused at the super super fast plane, and there's nothing they had that could keep up with it. So they had to come up with a unique way of shooting down the comet. Oh, look, it's gliding gently down to that field, the land. Now we should shoot it down. (laughs) Once it was in glider mode, it was helpless and they were very easily destroyed. Or they would wait for it to hit the ground, knowing it could not take off again, and then just shoot it there. Also, they they bombed Pitamunda. They they bombed uh, various other uh, fuel factories and things like that. So the combat wasn't exactly very uh, robust airframe, you know? Now... By the end of the war, the comet killed around nine enemy planes. Uh, some people say it was up to 10 to 15. That's unconfirmed. Uh, at the cost of 10 of their own in combat, I need to point out. So even in combat, they lost more than they took down. Flying 800 miles now, that's just embarrassing. But remember how many people have died in testing. Probably right. fivefold that. They built around 300 of these things. The vast majority of them blew up on the ground. Uh, this meant this is probably one of the few or maybe only planes to kill significantly more of its own pilots than the enemy during a war. Congratulations, Nazi Germany. You did it. Good job, uh, boys. Now you killed some Nazis. <laughs> Alexander Lipich high-fiving himself. I built a rocket that also killed Nazis, <laughs> but wait, I'm working for the Nazis? Fuck. That's, is this praxis? accidentally uh, becoming an anti-fascist via rocket science. Now, like I said, as the war rolled on, the comets were grounded. Uh, Point defense fighters were largely pointless. uh, And they also began to run out of talented pilots and fuel uh, because, you know, they killed all their own pilots. And you did have to be a very good pilot to fly these things. This wasn't like um, the, the Japanese kamikazes by the end of the war where they're just like, 
nope, we're giving you two hours of flight time and good luck. Yeah, these mm. guys had to be very good pilots to handle this thing. So they quickly ran out of all of those. Uh, after the war, only one Allied test pilot ever had the balls to try to fly one of these things, and it required a captured German ground crew in order to fly it. Now, they actually refused to fucking help him because they realized, like, this thing is going to kill you. If it kills you, they're going to blame us. Uh, but he eventually wrote them a letter saying, if I die while flying this thing, it's not your fault. Um, so after that, he did one test-powered flight, which went fine. Uh, he said it handled amazingly, uh, though landing and takeoff was a bitch. And uh, after that, the RAF permanently, permanently grounded all powered flights to the Comet, as did every other Allied power. That was the only powered flight of a Comet after the war. Uh, There's like 10 other p- planes that survived. And the only way they ever flown is like being towed behind another plane because the only safe way to fuck with this thing. Um, Also, by that point, remember, it's made of laminated wood. The lamination had begun to peel off, so couldn't fly it anymore. However, this is not the only rocket plane of the war. The Japanese, under agreement with the Germans, developed their own based on the comet. Now, originally, as I'm sure some of us have probably heard at some point, the Germans were going to stuff on these comets in a U-boat and float it over to Japan so they could work on it. Never happened, uh, you know, because the war did not go well uh, for the U-boats towards the end. And they were never able to actually ship the Japanese a full comet. But they did send them flight operations manuals and written descriptions uh, for their pilots to begin studying in preparation for a comet. So the Japanese took a flight operations manual and reverse engineered an entire comet from it. This did not go well. Um and it's one and only powered flight on July 7th, 1945. The rocket engine sputtered and died, crashing into the ground where it went up in a ball of flames, killing its test pilot. <laughs> and, that <Scoreboard>. is the <laughs> and that is the death of the comet. Uh, yeah, that, that's, um, that is the comet. I, I, I really hope uh, everybody enjoyed our, our more relaxed attempt at uh, an episode. We didn't do a genocide. We did not do a genocide. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been a while since we've just got to laugh at something dumb that blew up in everybody's face and, and kill, killed some Nazis, you know? Literally, yeah. This is Praxis, <laughs> folks. This yeah. is Praxis. Now, uh, Liam, we do, a, uh, we do a segment on this show called Questions from the Legion. Uh, if you would like to ask us a question from Legion, there is currently a thread going on our Patreon. You donate as a dollar you get access to our Patreon. Throw a question in there. Um, just a quick reminder, the question from the Legion is not about a, a episode or a series because that can be simply answered. Yes, I will eventually get to that. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no, no better way to, uh, there's no better way to answer that. Uh, but today's question from the Legion come, it comes from, uh, I have to point this out, Yusuke Yurameshi for uh, people who are not weebs such as myself and watch a lot of anime it's from a Yu Yu Hakusho. Really liked that show as a kid. Um, who do you think the next country to invade Afghanistan will be? China. Yeah, probably. Pakistan, also maybe likely. You know what? I'm going to go off the board here. Bhutan. Sleep. Fuck it. Fuck sleeping sleep power. Pick. Slip yep. pick. Sleep yep. pick. Sleeper pick. Yep. I'm, I'm going for the 16 seed. <laughs> I'm going Bhutan. Oh, um, yeah. But hey, every so often you beat Virginia. <laughs> and nobody ever sees Bhutan coming uh, into the final four. This is their year. I, I, I believe in the Wang Chuck dynasty's ability to take over Afghanistan <laughs> where we have failed. Um, so Liam, that, that Princeton offense. Yeah. It's not for everybody, but 
Uh, Liam, thank you for joining me uh, on this re- re- relaxed fit. Uh, nice smooth jazz, Nazi Dev. <laughs> smooth, smooth jazz episode. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, the the elevator music of podcasting. Uh, we get to talk about some Nazis melting uh, and uh, you know future imperial power, uh, the kingdom Bhutan. of Bhutan. Uh, so until next time, uh, I'll actually Liam plug your show. Well, there's your problem. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, I'm on a podcast called Well, There's Your Problem. It's a show with jokes about <laughs> engineering disasters from a leftist perspective. And we have slides. And honestly, like I, this is this is something that, well, there's your problem would we'll probably talk about. But since, you know, the Nazis did it, I got to steal it. Um, so uh, it's not a disaster that kills Nazis, Joe. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, thank you everybody for supporting the show. Uh, you make all, all the donations make what we do possible. And until next time, uh, break the sound barrier with a homemade rocket in your backyard. Do it. <laughs>